Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in it, but they had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone that changed my life in a pretty major way, and a lot of people in Toronto's life and other places too, Mark McCoy of... Well, I guess so much now. Youth Attack, Records, Failures, Das Oath. But for the purposes of this podcast, because we don't get very far, Charles Bronson. More on that in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, there is an email address that is turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. It is run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and he will... He will get that message to me. He will write you back, and 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 hopefully we can start some sort of communication, dialogue. Uh, but uh, if you can't get in touch with us there, you can find us on Facebook, turnoutapunk slash facebook dot com. You can find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. There's also a Turn Out of Punk Instagram page, Tumblr. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff out there. So check out Turned Out a Punk on various forms of social media and whatnot. And if you would like to support the show, the best way of doing that is by writing a review, rating it, telling all your friends. If you use iTunes, subscribing to it and writing a review would be great. Thank you for doing that to all you people that do. Uh, and, uh, if not on your platform of choice, just tell your friends though. That's the best way. Tell everyone, you know, about this podcast and, and the good time you have listening to it and the fun, fun conversations about music, you know, just, just tell, tell your buds, bring it up. Uh, and, uh, speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the loving, kind support of my friends at Vans and House of Vans. And just, you know, they just came on board. They said, we don't want you to do this and lose money anymore. So here you go. Keep the show going, uh, not in your own pocket. And, uh, yeah, we will be uh, going uh, to fly you out to some House of Vans events and doing some fun stuff like that. You heard that last week with the uh, Fletcher and Craig Satari one. I will be going to another House of Vans thing coming up in the near future. But more on that as details are made available to myself. And, yeah, we will be having a great time at that event. As you heard last week. This is the best possible um, relationship because it leads to me being able to sit down and talk to uh, Fletcher and Craig Satari, two artists that are on uh, Epitaph and Fat Records, or were on Epitaph and Fat Records, um, which is amazing because it perfectly segues into the artist I'm going to be talking about today, which is Mark McCoy of the band Charles Bronson. For those of you unfamiliar with Charles Bronson, they wrote a song about not wanting to be in a band with someone because they like bands on Epitaph and Fat Records. So there is, uh, you know, not a lot of connection between this week and last week's guest. Oh, I guess Chicago, because Jughead was on last week and, and Mark follows right out of that same scene. But once again, not someone that I think was a Screeching Weasel fan um, into their, their 20s, you know? Like, I think he talks about it in this. You'll hear about this in the episode, but... Charles Bronson was the band that I think, you know, you know, much like in the same way that I've talked about other bands being this for other scenes and things like that. But Charles Bronson for Toronto specifically, I just remember there were bands that were, you know, just directly, you know, aping the humor. Uh, Jonah from Fucked Up and Martin from Career Suicide and Jonah, I guess, from Career Suicide too, had this band, Board of Education, that... I think they will both freely admit, I think Jonah even does on his episode, that they were heavily, heavily indebted to Charles Bronson. 
Uh, Charles Bronson was, yeah, just this band that, that, you know, a lot of people loved. A lot of people did not like them too. And they, uh, kind of relished in that as you'll hear on this episode of the show. Now, Mark has gone on to become, you know, quite the label head, I guess, for lack of a better, label curator, I think is the better way to put it. Uh, he does an, a great label called Youth Attack that puts out a lot of really, fascinating releases with a lot of great music on them, but even the way they put out the records is interesting. Uh, so I've wanted to have him on the show for a while. I asked him to come on the show uh, a while ago and then just didn't happen. And now it's finally happened. And I am so happy that it did. So I'm not going to blather on anymore. I'm going to let you sit back, relax and enjoy. Oh, wait, before I do that, uh, fucked up is going on tour on the West coast and we will be coming to a town near you. Potentially, if you live on the West Coast, uh, starting, uh, well, you know, in Arizona, working our way up to Vancouver. So if you're hearing this, when this thing's dropping, check your local listings and see if we're rolling through your town. West Coast of the United States, I should say. In Canada. One show in Canada. So Vancouver, looking at you, coming out to Vancouver. Uh, so that's it. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy Mark McCoy on Turned Out a Pond. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, buddy. Well, as I was just sparing you off air for this part right here, but uh, uh-huh. this has been a long time coming. I've wanted to interview you for for like 20 plus years. Oh, come on. Dude, legit. Like I, I you know, was going to say this off air, but now I'll say it to you. Charles Bronson is, I, I don't know, like one of the most important bands, I think, when it comes to... Uh, the development of, of the hardcore scene that I was a part of, you know, and, and I think (laughs) the sense of humor that you guys interjected and, and the nerdiness and all that stuff. Uh, my God, my friend, (laughs) I'm going to punch you. Bring it on. Okay. Well, I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is Mark, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? There was a huge shopping mall in my hometown that I frequented. Which was located near a naval base. So every weekend, this place would fill up with naval cadets on leave. Okay. Uh, and, and once at the Camelot Music Store there, I overheard one of these Navy guys ask a store employee if they had Chromags in stock. And it was like <laughs> this nerdy employee who was like, now is that hardcore? And the... <laughs> the, the was like this big buff guy and he was like yes very fucking hard <laughs> so i think i was like 12 at that time and that impression stayed with me and i thought like well this music isn't for wimps <laughs> <laughs> but like the store had a hardcore section and That's i would awesome. just spend hours I would just stand there studying like the spine names of like the releases, like in these stacked in these rows, trying to make, you know, the best informed choice about what to buy. And I just struck gold on minor threat and I bought, you know, both tapes and every week I would go back hoping there would be a third minor threat tape Because it seemed insane to me that they had so little content. Like, what kind of band would just put out that, you know, that little time? It was like, what, 20 minutes total of music or something? Mm-hmm. What made you, was it just like luck of the draw with the Minor Threat one? Was it something about, you know, the band name that drew you to it? 
Yeah, the name was just so striking. Yeah. You know, and like the cover art with Alec Mackay, it just seems like relatable to me. I mean, and, you know, and I was just getting into skateboarding too. So there was Thrasher coming out every month and like Puss Heads article, Puss Zone mm-hmm. would, would talk about bands. So I was trying to connect the through like the chain store in the mall through what I was able to pick up through in Thrasher. And Super. I knew that like skaters were in hardcore. <laughs> so where did you kind of go from there with this minor threat tape? Uh, well, I started just taking risks. I must have wasted like a thousand dollars on bad stuff that you know you just like get home and you put it on, and in two seconds you're like, oh god, <laughs> you know, all you're like there were so many fucking all tapes at this mall. Like who listens to all? Uh, but I remember giving my mom like a wish list for Christmas. So I thought like, well, if I can sort of pawn these risks off onto her for Christmas, then it's less of a blow to me. Cause my, I think my allowance was like $10 a week or something. So yeah. it was like everything I got would go to a tape. I didn't have a record player. And, uh, she had, she'd gotten the list and gone to the mall and must've asked one of the employees because she came back to me and very cautiously asked, you know, what is this? hardcore thing this isn't sex is it (laughs) so that was always like um you know it it was immediate that you know the parents were never going to get it yeah so that was kind of cool it was incentivizing to just go down this path yeah so i was really on my own for a long time i eventually i met like a kid uh that we skated together and we took risks and we would like dub each other's tapes that we would bring home. So it just sort of grew out of that, you know, what were some of the other, this like, like eighth grade. Sorry. You mentioned all being not one of your favorites, but what were, what were some of the other bands that, you know, stuck out to you? Cause I think, I think it's amazing also like, like you, you know, you specifically, obviously, but your band had such specific defined parameters of like hardcore and punk, like, you know, like an aesthetic. Oh yeah. Kind of like, uh, you know, masterstroke. Well, you know, it gravitated to the DC scene. And, you know, those bands had only been broken up a few years by the time we got into it. So they seemed very near and relatable. And, you know, they were like 18, 19 at the time. And what we were 13 by the time we got into them. Uh, so it seems like, you know, these were guys that we understood and we certainly gravitated toward the content and the lyrics, you know, right away it was, um, it was like, we're never going to drink. We're just never going to do any drugs and <laughs> we're just going to be like this forever. There's, there's, there was no question. Like, you know, these guys, they, they know what's cool. So like, why would you do anything else? And, you know, getting into this, it, it was empowering, especially as we got older and watched, you know, a lot of kids just sort of go down this uh, dark path of, you know, getting drunk on the weekends and doing drugs and sort of losing interest in anything other than that stuff. And it seems sort of tragic in a way. So to cling to that, you know, DC mentality, even though we were in, you know, nowhere land Midwest, uh, was sort of a lifeline. It was definitely an inspiration for me. And I couldn't play any music or anything. So, you know, it was always a far off fantasy to, to actually be in a band. Like I didn't know anyone that had instruments or anything. 
Yeah, uh, what, it wasn't until I was, you know, 18. What were the kids around What's, you at the time kind of into? Like, uh, the, like the other oh, high like school rap kids. music. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, from the skate videos that we would watch, you just sort of pick up what was like current. Mm-hmm. And those skate videos, I think, especially in that era from 88 to about 92, there were so many incredible leaps in progress with like tricks and style and fashion. And, you know, even though I was always of the Ray Barbie school of like vision streetwear and jeans and, you know, just like basics, mm-hmm. I, I always liked that sort of Bones Brigade look. Um, the whole like skate culture just sort of exploded and we kind of went along with that. And I think a lot of the kids that were into hardcore at the very beginning just gravitated out of it because of the skaters in these videos were just, you know, they were so West coast and they were all really into the music that was happening out there. So, you know, I did get into that stuff. I, I remember getting into like soul stiff and I remember hearing uh, tank clan in one of these videos. So, you know, I was still paying attention to it up until like the time Charles Bronson started. What about like, cause obviously on these tapes at the same time, you probably would have heard, you know, all that, you know, California stuff, the Epifat stuff that was kind of just starting to bubble under at that point. Were you immediately adverse to it or did you, you know, did you have a no effects period early on? Oh yeah. I was into no effects for sure. Okay. And you know, I was into everything. So I was like into screeching weasel because I knew they were local. Yeah. And there was a, you know, I was about 35 minutes north of Chicago. So when I could get a ride to the city, we would drive down there to go to the store wax tracks. And we would just buy whatever we could, you know, whatever we had the money for. And whatever we had, we would just, you know, share. So we would all, I just had so many dubs of bands and, uh, yeah, that, all the great stuff I just kind of stumbled into. But yeah, there was a, a lot of awkward maybe phases that you're trying to piece together, like this. Does Screeching Weasel really fit into Infest? And <laughs> a lot of it came from this guy, Todd Congelier, who was a pro skater that I befriended forcefully when I was like 16. And he had this band, FYP, and it was early on as a hardcore band. Mm-hmm. And he was a huge inspiration for me because it seemed like he was not particularly talented, but he had this drive to just create this stuff. And it was so crude that you know we took that into charles bronson like this lack of professionalism was the real way to go how did you get uh, but I, oh it's crazy they, he had this deck with the um like the icy bear on it okay and there was a number on it to me that seemed like it was like a prison like serial number <laughs> yeah but it was it was nine digits and I thought, maybe that's his phone number. And I called it, no one answered. And then I did it in reverse. And a guy picked up and I'm like, is this Todd? And he's like, yeah. Are you kidding me? That is that is fucking crazy. Yeah, that was his home phone number. From And like you somehow cracked that like Da Vinci code and figured yeah. out how to get in touch with him. And I think he was really weirded out, but it was just kind of ran with it because he was so nice. Well, I, and I would just drill him like, what do I get into? I, you know, I like minor threat, but what else do I need to hear? And he was like, oh, you got to hear 
void and you have to hear negative effects and you have to hear teen idols and SSD, but don't get the later SSD shit because it sucks. <laughs> That's awesome. So is that where you would have heard about Infest too? No. So through Todd, he had this label recessed. Yep. This is like 91. He put out, uh, or he was distroing stuff for this band Sheep Squeeze, I think. Yeah. So I just took, I forget actually. He definitely knew Sheep Squeeze, but I think I stumbled on the Sheep Squeeze randomly also through MRR. I just called this number to get their demo. Okay. And it was Dan Lactose from Spaz. So it was like his band before Spaz. Yeah. And I was like, is this Dan? And he goes, yeah. And I remember him being like, wait, who is this? Like really weirded out. And I apologized and said, like, you don't know me. I live in Illinois, but I want your demo. And so we just started trading and he was like, you should check out this band crossed out. And Dan, uh, I don't, I don't want to give too much away about this infest record that he was selling at the time, <laughs> but I, I got an infest seven inch from Dan. And so that, that started to, you know, get the wheels turning like what was current. So there was this gap, you know, between the DC stuff and the West coast shit, but Dan kind of like put it into perspective that that's where the stuff like was the logical progression from. So that it went from like, Deep Wound and Siege to like Infest and then Crossed Out. Mm -hmm. And I remember playing that for my skater friends and they were like, dude, this is death metal. What is this bullshit, man? Like, turn this shit off. This sucks. And I knew right there, like, oh, these guys don't get it. Like, they're a bunch of lamos that were already smoking weed and they were like having sex at 14. And I was like, you know, these guys kind of suck. So I'm going to go in this direction. Like it made sense. So, you know, were there any kids around you though, that were kind of on the same wavelength at this point? Cause like ultimately there are other people like Charles Bronson's a DeKalb band, right? Well, I was living in, you know, my hometown in Waukegan, which is a, like a lakefront town an hour away. Okay. So sorry. it wasn't until I, I went to college that I met people in DeKalb. So I didn't, I didn't know anybody and I was still, you know, really into skateboarding, but I was listening to this stuff. And then there would just be local shows like local punk shows. And I started meeting people there and I was actually in a band before Charles Bronson called the rejected. Oh, you guys and I played. Anything? Yeah. We were so bad. <laughs> what was the vibe? Uh, I think it was just like really generic, like hardcore. But we had this older dude who played guitar in the band who was like, you guys ever get into ska core? And I was just like, <laughs> you know, I liked Op Ivy being into skateboarding, like, cause they had songs and, um, this H street video that I worship. So I was, I was way into Op Ivy, but I didn't want to sound like Op Ivy cause I yeah. knew that like, it was kind of uncool. But so they, they tried to wedge a few songs <laughs> of that style. <laughs> we actually are on this comp that this guy Dave Dumpsterland put out. We have one song recorded. Is it like a tape comp or a 7-inch comp? No, it's a 7-inch comp. I uh -oh. forget who else is on like 88 Fingers Louie or whatever. Like uh, you know, like these Chicago like melodic punk like pop punk bands. So like that was what was happening at the time and you know, I wasn't into any of it. But I would mm -hmm. just go to these shows, but uh yeah. So 
going to these shows, I started meeting people in my town. Like I met Abro there and I met John Aaron's there and Mike Sutfin there. So Mike and I had like painting classes and he was this amazing painter right away. But, you know, revealed that growing up he was into DRI and Napalm Death. He actually played me Napalm Death the first time and I was I remember laughing at it with him. But um we just decided to Mike wasn't in the in Charles Bronson initially, it was our friend James. But uh we just decided to try to do this band. Uh because our our earlier bands had played together and we knew that they sucked. So like by the time I went back to my sophomore year in school I was 19 at the time. We just agreed we're going to do this new thing. And Dan had uh, exposed me to the Neos. So I was, you know, in full Neos mode, like learning their songs on the tablature from the insert of the second record. Uh, and I just thought, like, this is the real shit. Like, this is what we should be playing. And it was something nobody was doing at the time. So this is 94. And none of us could play any of this. I mean, like Ebro, I don't know if he even knew who the Neos were. He might have. But as a band, we physically couldn't really play at all. <laughs> it's funny because, like, the Neos are this band that, you know, like, like talk about the secret, you know, great band from Canada that is passed down. But, like, you know, you talked about Deep Wound, like, huge connection in the Neos with them. Um you know, no effects does a Neos cover even on a seven inch. Yeah. There's yeah. like, uh, you know, the Neos are like that, the, the secret coolest Canadian band before Drake, there was the Neos. <laughs> well, and they were so young. It just, you know, yeah. they were so good and they made this 14 song seven inch and they were like 15, 16, 17 years old and switching instruments. I mean, these guys were crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to, to approach something like that, uh, was was you know was so exciting because it just seemed like well if if we fail I mean no one was taking it seriously anyway so <laughs> whatever um, had you but, seen you know, the Michiganos oh yeah yeah so I was uh, you know I kind of glommed onto them and befriended them and their entourage and you know obviously those guys went on to be in the repos so yeah. I've known them like twenty five years now which is really weird incredible band. The Meshuganas? Well, no, the, the <laughs> repos. The Meshuganas are pretty good. A <laughs> couple tracks. Oh, they were really, you know, entertaining live. I went to every one of their shows for a while. But yeah, we started playing with them, actually. And, you know, Charles Bronson was just sort of this, like, joke opener. In fact, Ebro had played in the Meshuganas uh, on the first, on the demo, and I think the first seven inch. Yeah, that's why, that's why I brought him up. Is that where you, like, what was the first shows you kind of went to? In DeKalb, the first show I ever went to was Seven Seconds and Only the Strong, which was Tony Victory's yeah. Straight Edge Band. Uh, but that was in my hometown. And I, I remember um, one of their crew got on stage and was like, yo, no stage diving. Just everyone make sure no stage diving. You know, Only the Strong hit their first note. That dude was just doing like the most crazy <laughs> cannonball, like swan dives, like it was just this formality and i was like whoa you know these guys are nuts uh seven seconds was like pretty cool for me at that time and i i remember being kind of more taken by the sort of raw ugliness they were really hard mm -hmm. uh, uh the sound of only the strong uh 
yeah and i just remember thinking like wow everyone's just like beating beating each other and i just i just took a swing at this girl in front of me. i just punched her in the back and she was this huge woman i mean she was like taller than me and just like a giant woman and just turned around and just clobbered me so hard <laughs> but that was like the first time and i remember getting troy moat's guitar kick and i was like you know i was like you know a kid at like a beatles concert or something you know because i'd like worship the crew so much yeah and to see these they were kind of lame because they had long hair and like the whole like soul force revolution shit i mean it was really lame but at the time it didn't really matter well, like everyone says, even at that point, like they still were like incredible live too, right? Like they would still put on a really good live show and play, I guess, other songs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, it was like an hour long or something and they just went song to song, kind of covering their whole catalog. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was, it was godly. I'd never been to a show. It was the first show I ever went to. Like my parents kind of dropped us off, I think, or we walked. I, I just remember my parents had no role in our attendance there. So it felt like we were getting away with something just being there. Also with like only the strong and, you know, with Shuganos and like, I guess, uh, Screeching Weasel, like it's, it's Chicago. There's no like Chicago sound, like after a certain point, like in the early years, I guess there's like a certain kind of like style to the Chicago hardcore punk stuff that was coming out. But like, you know, like by the point, by the end of the eighties into the nineties, that's when it really like Chicago starts putting out like every style of band, like cap and jazz charles bronson like it really is like a incredibly diverse scene it was but when we entered it it felt like it had become slick and conformist in fact and that it had lost its course from the 80s bands Mm -hmm. that all of the energy and spontaneity of those bands had been abandoned by the time that charles bronson began so it was a lot of preachy bands or bands that seem to just kind of be having fun, like the Vindictives, where it was just kind of a party type of band. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we went to all those shows and tried to, like, soak it all in. And I mean, I remember just thinking, like, you know, it is what it is, I guess. I just sort of take it for what it is. But nothing really blew me away until I saw Los Crudos play for the first time. And I thought, like, okay, finally, there's, like, a, a band doing something that was, like, new and fresh at... They they were like older guys and they were from like a very different area and they, they were really preachy also, but the music was so vicious and volatile that it was it felt like finally something exciting. Uh so they were an instant favorite band. How how early into their uh, kind of career, I guess, for lack of a better term, did you see them? Like were you seeing them like on before the first seven inch even? Oh yeah. Yeah, I have photos of them with, uh, you know, the early lineup playing at, I think this band, this, no, it was called a, a venue called the Cubby Bear. It was right by Wrigley Field. It was just a bar. And I remember uh, uh, Martine saying, like, this song is about fear. And uh, someone in the crowd was like, yeah, beer. So <laughs> it was like, I don't think people were really ready for like what they were about to, to drop. But it was definitely uh, before the first seven inch. Okay. I think that was like 90, 94 something. I don't know. Who were but like yeah, like in, 
I was just saying they were kind of outliers, but they had their shit together. And, you know, they were doing this sort of wretched sound mm-hmm. in the Gassiani type of sound, which, you know, I was into that stuff and hearing them do it was, was cool, you know, because no one was doing that. Everything was just, you know, super slick haircuts and like matching jackets and, you know, this sort of crew mentality. Uh, a lot of the people from like the North Shore suburbs were just rich kids that, uh, you know, not to fault them for that, but it was just, you know, they, we didn't really relate to them either. So mm-hmm. being an hour west in this isolated corn town, we, we didn't even really feel part of the Chicago scene. In fact, we took this sort of uh, offensive stance to those bands, like right away, we just thought like everything there sucks. There, you know, there's there was just nothing to really to grab onto aside from crudos but they were sort of uh in their own world as well like they there was an air of mystery about them well yeah because martin had like he i guess he had been a a part of that bigger chicago scene too right because there's that comp he put out with screeching weasel on it and you know obviously he took the photos i think in that first screeching weasel record too or the second one at boogada boogada maybe so but yeah they, they they just feel so like you're saying, like like a band unto themselves. Yeah, they were from Pilsen, which was the south side, technically. And, you know, no one went down there. It was not a good neighborhood at the time. And if we went anywhere, it was like the trendy areas where there were stores to buy stuff. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We didn't hang out there, really. We didn't know anybody there. You went there to shop and then you drove home. Uh, so, yeah, we were all total suburbanites. But... Um, you know, by the time we got to college, we started going to shows there on the on the weekend. So, I think John Aaron's would you know borrow his parents' vehicle. <laughs> he in fact borrowed his mother's SUV, or no, not SUV, uh, a minivan. By the t- you know when Charles Bronson drove uh, fourteen hours to play in New York for the first time, so I think he was like maybe eighteen, like was working as a dishwasher, and I think got off work and drove over to our house, and we went to New York. I mean. He's still living with his parents and I think maybe just out of high school. Yeah, because he was doing that label when he was still in high school, disgruntled. That's right. Yeah, he was. Um, Which is also like, because uh, I think he, was disgruntled put up the Charles Bronson demo or is that like, or no, Privilege Cracker put up the Charles Bronson demo on, on vinyl. Um, but, That's actually a bootleg. Oh yeah, but you know, it's a, it's a bootleg. <laughs> Like I, I actually don't I don't have I don't know anything about it actually oh really like it just yeah no you guys kind of did have beef with everybody like it seemed like Charles Bronson was the band and this is something that I think fucked up definitely tried to emulate in the beginning but like that gave no fucks and like just called out everything oh absolutely and we were getting a lot of trouble for it actually there was just less accountability. I mean, you could just say shit and it would just sort of, you know, it wouldn't really come back to haunt you. Yeah. So we definitely use that to our advantage. And yeah, I just, you know, we really did think that most things sucked. I mean, like by the time we were up and running, we, we knew a lot of, you know, bands that we were friends with, but like outside of what we were doing, it just, most stuff was just sort of cheesy. You know, like if you were going to talk between songs, you were lame. (laughs) It was just lame. 
Yeah. Because it should be about the music. You know, and we would get this lecture all the time that, oh, it's got to be more than music. And there's there even a fest called More Than Music Fest. You know, it was just never our, our MO. It was it was never about that. Yeah. What, what like what was the scene that you guys kind of thought you would fit into? Like, you know, there's a lot of bands that follow your lead. But like, was it that kind of West Coast, I guess, power violence scene for what has been kind of termed now? But like, where did you guys see yourselves fitting in? It's like we had allies, you know what I mean? We ha- we were friends with Spaz. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to think who else. You know, MK Ultra was like our brother band in Illinois. We really related to those guys. They were they were just like us. They were a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had like real jobs. But they were hilarious. And there, there's something about a Midwest mentality that I think a lot of people there share. And they certainly have that with... You know, there's the sense of humor and um, the whole attitude about life and their devotion to the music. All these things sort of just gelled uh, definitely, you know, with, with those guys. Absolutely. I, I, one Another band that I think is super underrated. Like, I, I love that band so much. Uh, were you, like, into Bloodthirst? Like, had you known Frank from Bloodthirst and those guys? I didn't meet him until he was doing uh, the sound effects for... Wait, no, he wasn't, he was, I, I saw him culture play once without him. And then he, oh, I remember now it was like 4th of July, 1995 and John Aaron's basement. And that was when MK ultra played for the first time with Frank on vocals. And we were like instant buddies, but, um, I hadn't seen his earlier strategy band play. No. That's a classic demo. You know, to this day, I've never heard it. Really, I will. I will give you a dub. I bought it off someone in a in a tape collection. He is. He hates the fact that I have it. Oh my god! He's like, please don't play that for anyone. But I'll give you a dub. Oh, that's serious. Yeah. Um, it was always so exciting when we saw them play. I mean, they were so good, and their drummer was like a powerhouse. That guy Gary Seahack. He was just like this big marine dude. With a you know a flat top haircut, uh, he was just you know not really a punk, but it was into chrome eggs and stuff, and just had like the most menacing presence as a drummer. And they had good equipment and they had drop D tuning. I don't think Charles Bronson ever ever thought about tuning or amps <laughs> or guitar tones or where to position anything. It was just never even thought of. So what was the kind of like, you know, I guess like mission statement of Charles Bronson, just like to rage, like to be like, like just raging hardcore. Yeah. I think we were, we were trying to recapture, I think something that had been lost. I mean, the bands at that time were drowning in their self-seriousness and we thought they were boring and it, you know, it became clear that, that ideas were taking a priority over the music and there were so many fucking bad records out. So, you know, we made a point to check out everything and it got to a point where we were ordering from vacuum records every week and we were all getting different stuff and like listening to different things. But, uh, in terms of like what we were doing, it was, it was always, uh, a certain attitude that I don't know if I've ever really been able to pin down. It was just sort of this defiance contrarian 
uh, self-ridiculing type of thing. I mean, we were well aware that here we are in college. You know, if anything is lame, it's to be like be in college, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, to be at, and taking classes and studying. And it was just not cool. Thinking about it now is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But, but you know, at the time it seemed like, you know, who were we? We're, we're just as stupid. Why don't we just make fun of everything? So the, it was almost this absurdist approach to, to what this music was meant to be. It just seems like the sort of next step of uh, what it would evolve into, like the humor element came very organically. But I think looking back, it was somewhat borrowed from FYP, who had a similar sort of, you know, self-ridicule, but they weren't as like mean. Mm -hmm. So we were like deliberately seeking out and making enemies for our own enjoyment because it was funny. Because everyone was so easily rustled that yeah. if you just said, like, I'm your enemy, they would just flip out. I mean, like, it was years after the fact, people were still coming up to me, like, Felix Von Havoc was like, hey, that was, you know, really mean what you guys said. I mean, what was, like, your whole issue? <laughs> yep. <laughs> also, history has served them well, though. If, like, I, I would pay $600 all day for... Uh, fixed vengeance or a necro sex drive now. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so maybe he's laughing with his bullet belt now, Mark. I'm sure he is. <laughs> I'm just joking. What, what, that, were you guys record collectors? Or like, because that obviously you've got that kind of taste. Like, did you collect records back then? Yeah. You know, yeah, like anyone. <laughs> you grew up collecting toys and comic books and baseball cards. It was just the next step, right? Yeah, and yeah. to to realize that a lot of the stuff was still affordable then. You know? mm -hmm. Like it wasn't that hard to get. I don't think it was that sought after. And we knew one of the main buyers at Raffles Records in Chicago and you know, he would hook us up. Um but Abro I think was the most devoted record collector was was like actively pursuing records and if you were in a store flipping through a rack he'd you know reach over you and grab a record in front of you that he wants i remember him taking a go seven inch from me like basically yanked it out of my hands you know that was that bro oh god i've been on tour with him enough to know that that is so true <laughs> yeah man, he has an amazing twice. collection he does have an amazing collection absolutely yeah <laughs> um, but like, so were you guys like, you know, you're, you're buying records, you know, getting into all this stuff, like at the same time, was there any stuff that was kind of coming out around you at that time that you were like, okay, these guys get it. This is, you know, other than the spaz stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we took a liking to a lot of what was going on. There was this Canadian band swallowing shit that we liked. Mm -hmm. We befriended those guys. Uh, uh, there was a, a thing in Florida sort of building up too with uh, Asshole Parade and Palatka. Uh, we were friends with those guys. Um, let me think. I don't know. Would you, how much tour did you guys do? Like, I know you, you mentioned that New York None. show. None. Yeah. But didn't you guys do No, we were supposed to go on a tour and um, Jeff's father passed away like the night before we were supposed to leave. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, that we just, we had all these shirts, I remember. We were all ready to go. This 
guy we knew from, I think he was from Minnesota, was going to take us in his van. And I remember calling him and saying, like, oh, forget it, man. All these shows were stuff. I believe there was flyers. We had, I remember having a flyer for a show in San Diego with the Locust that we never ended up playing. But we did actually fly out to the West Coast to play. So I wouldn't call that touring, but, you know, we did, we did, you know, go to Fiesta Grande. That was a big deal. Yeah. Oh, so you guys, yeah, because I thought I was going to say, because you guys are on that comp, right? No, we're the one band that mercifully got cut from the comp. They said that the tapes didn't turn out, but we were so fucking out of tune. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> we sounded so goddamn bad. The video of it is hilarious, but. The, you guys are on that Possessed Escape comp, though, that came out from, I think, somewhere in California, too, right? Pessimizer might have did that? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just Despise You was a big band that we were like, you know, we worship Despise You. Yeah. The band's fucking incredible. And we used to talk to, I used to talk to Chris Elder on the phone all the time, and he would have the greatest stories about being like a teenager in East LA and just going through abandoned buildings and finding like dead bums in the rubble of buildings. Like, you know, just it was like it was normal. Wow. He, I remember telling me he had to put bars over the windows of his house and he had guns and it was just like so, such a different world. I mean, we were like totally softies by comparison. You know, he was singing about these grim things. I think he was actually living. And meanwhile, we were just like these teenage brats. It's, it's amazing though, with the hardcore is kind of like that place where the two worlds meet. You know, like the reality yeah. and the, the fantasy kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it was cool getting to meet a lot of these people, especially going out to the West Coast and, you know, getting to meet like Man is the Bastard. And they were really great to us. They actually gave us um, their money from playing to help us with our plane tickets. Whoa. Uh yeah, and I remember when uh, Eric Wood was at one of our shows in Chicago and pulled me out onto the sidewalk. And, you know, we had been talking about doing an LP. So I I don't think he knew this, but he was just like, Bronson, P, 20 songs stacked. And, like, that was the way he talked. He just talked, like, really weird. <laughs> and I just remember thinking okay, well, we have to write a 20-song record then. And so we did. <laughs> um, when that record came out, it felt like, uh, it felt like you know, there, it was a big deal. Like, the anticipation was, was something that, you know, certainly around my parts in Toronto was very high for that album. Um, was that something that was kind of like, was there like, could you perceive that there was a, a buzz about the band around Are the we, time that record came out? We were already broken up. Well, I had already moved to New York and was like in school. You guys had already like played your last show? Yeah. Oh, wow. I had no idea it was that close to that. Well, how, how long after the yeah. LP came out? I believe we broke up in September and it came out later that year, like maybe November or something. So, no, we never even played on it. A lot of those songs we never played live. You know, we would, we, I think maybe we played a few of them, but, um, it all came together very quickly. I mean, I could barely play guitar at the time mm -hmm. and I just knew that the clock was ticking and 
I remember writing songs that I couldn't even perform. You know, I would give them to Jeff Jalen, who was amazing at guitar. Yeah. And he would just sort of like put them together. But like, I, I remember just like showing him the riffs, but I couldn't really play them. <laughs> but that's how the record was written. Just a really weird style. There's rehearsals of us uh, writing it. So they, you know, he would, Jeff would come over maybe once a week or something. Because he lived nearer Chicago, um, near Downers Grove. So he was about 40 minutes away or so. But yeah, he would come over and we would just sort of shut the basement window. And we had this neighbor that hated us and would kick in the window all the time and be like, you're done. Turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) Just ignore him. (laughs) So yeah, it was always kind of like in the back of our minds that we've got to hustle because... I got an accepted to school and it was just sort of understood that there was nothing else to be done. You write an LP and that's it. There was never any idea, you know, ideas beyond that. We wouldn't, wouldn't have toured or done another record or anything like that. It was just kind of like everything went into that. And that was like the final, the final ask, you know, the final word on that band. Why do you think that was like, why did you guys never really want to tour? Cause like you guys put out records in Japan. So I imagine there would have been interest going there or, or like from there, from there for you guys to go over or, or Europe or something. Was there just like no interest in pursuing anything kind of pro core at all or. Yeah. There, there's never any sense of professionalism whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So like if it was something a proper band did, well, my God, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Like, why would you tour? That's that sounds horrible. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, it's um, and having been in bands after that, you realize that. Like, oh my god! Yeah, touring is brutal. It ages you. You sit around all day. It's you know, it's depressing. It's so hard on you physically. Most of the shows suck. Yeah, Maybe you come home broke. Yeah, it's so weird how that happens. You know, it's like. Why is it, why does it have to be that way? But it it seems like it does. It's just the nature of the road, I guess. I think so. But that fantasy is always in place that, you know, you want things to work out and, uh, yeah, you hope for the best, but there was never any that in Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson never had the least bit of optimism about anything. (laughs) But did, like, were you aware that like you guys were, you know, becoming a not becoming a thing but like the the people were taking to what you guys were putting out there that like people were responding to to the art you were making um only somewhat but you know i kind of tuned it out because i didn't really want to hear about it yeah if that makes sense yeah because it was like it kind of interfered with my perception of this because i didn't i didn't want that to I don't know, skew what we were doing, which felt so natural because we never had a shortage of ideas. And then once we started playing into that character or whatever, it would have just been insincere. So that's always kind of shut out. But I I do remember one time playing in this basement with Inhumanity, who was so good. And then we played after. And uh, a kid had asked me to autograph his drums, like one of Ebro's broken drumsticks. And I think that was maybe like the first time that that had ever occurred. I mean, I'd never signed an autograph or anything. So it was like the first time 
it occurred to me that like people were into it, you know, that people were like waiting for us or cared. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I don't know if that's totally accurate because we we did go to California and at Gilman I remember people seemed to like us, but I thought we were horrible. Is is it because you viewed Charles Bronson as being something that was like almost like had a thesis in the sense that it was like it was a negative hardcore band and like positivity would have changed that? Yeah. We had a song called Fuck Being Positive, I believe that I don't think it ever got recorded, but yeah, that was, it it was just, you know, it was like fun. It was fun to really hate what we were doing at the same time, put all of our time and effort into it. It's very, it's very nihilistic actually, because we never wanted anything beyond just this agony of uh, putting the time in and getting nothing out of it. I mean, we never got paid. I think we get like $40 at the most for playing. We'd, you know, I, I remember one time, like we were in the back of Aaron Aspermall's truck. He had this little like Toyota truck. You know, we almost we almost died. We had ridden to Chicago in the the cab, so there was like the the back of it had like a a top on the back, and uh, it was so cold that I think we all just agreed to cram into the front. I think it only really fit like two people, but I think there was four of us in there, and. Um, he got in an accident where someone like sideswiped him and the whole cap like flew off the back. I mean, if we were back there, it would have decapitated us. It was so crazy. Another time, um, John Aaron's base like fell out of his truck on the highway. It was in the, the case and someone had picked it up on the side of the highway and like, I think drove it to his house. Another time uh, we were driving to New York and there was like, a fucking boulder had like rolled down a mountain into the middle of the highway. We was like three in the morning and John and I were up. Everyone was asleep in the van and we were driving overnight and the road was kind of twisting and there had been like a blizzard. It was just treacherous. And we look up and there's like a boulder the size of a car just in the middle of the highway. And we were going like 80 miles an hour. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. So maybe it's better you guys didn't tour. Yeah. Safer. It was just, you know, we never really had, we never had our shit together. We, you know, it just wasn't really, we didn't have a model to really follow. So yeah, by the would, time that like spaz came through, we saw how organized they were. We were just kind of like, wow, well, I guess that's how you do it. <laughs> but Everett would have been touring in Los Crudos by that point, right? He had, yeah. I don't know how together they were either. They definitely, you know, were, I mean, they toured like South America and like Europe. And I remember Ebro came home and he was like 30 pounds lighter from not eating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're like, no, thanks. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just kind of a weird thing to think about. Uh, I, I can't really compare it to anything because again, we had no, no real frame of reference. We were, really were isolated and like the collective energy of the members just kind of made the band what it was even though we changed members kind of a lot everyone had a similar attitude it was just like put all the effort we can into it but expect nothing and get nothing Mm -hmm. was there any thought of trying to keep the band going once you got to new york or was it like that's the end Oh, absolutely not. I mean, 
you know, we had gotten so many offers to play again, and it just seemed so silly. You know, because if you play a last show, just let it be the end and move on. And everyone immediately started new bands, and it just seems like it would have been weird or insincere to try and recapture something that was so of the time and so of the moment. We were all living in the same town. Everyone moved out of that town. How long was it before you started doing music again? Uh, about two years. I tried to start bands, but they just didn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Either the guys like couldn't play anything or there was always something wrong. Like one guy couldn't play drums. Another guy just was too like controlling with like the direction and the sound. It had to be like the specific thing. And another, another band just like couldn't really write the style that I wanted. See, when Charles Bronson was a band, we never actually wanted to sound like we did. I think it was always this goal to be something that we just couldn't, and uh, whatever came out was was like the result. But it was it was always kind of a failed attempt to to capture something that we couldn't actually perform. If that makes sense. Well, I think I think honestly, yeah, I think everyone's band is that. Like, I, I wish I was in Poison Idea. Um, what band yeah, were you? Guys, I, mean, I, I know what you mean. What band were you? What band were, in your mind were you aiming for? I always wanted to be in a band that sounded like Void. Yeah. Because that to me was the most unhinged band with the most crazy lyrics and, you know, the best singer, the best guitarist. Like none of it really worked. At, you know, if you go back and listen to that stuff, it's, it's so sloppy. It, it doesn't matter that it is. And no one wrote riffs like that. So like they're kind of in their own world. Yeah. Did you, did you like that first United Mutation 7-inch, too? Yeah, I love that stuff. That, that thing's yeah, so fucking killer. Yeah, there's a band on my label now that uh, called City Hunter that a lot of people say has uh, traces of United Mutation. And I think it's it's pretty audible. Um, yeah. I think it's a fair comparison. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean, I think the Void songs on Flex Your Head, I think essentially like the the pinnacle of hardcore to me that was like you can't get better than those three songs yeah but like whatever and then i heard the gangrene stuff on um what's it called this is boston not la and and that to me also raised the bar like i wished that we could play like that but the the kick pedal on that was like almost double time and it's so out of control and like the singer's voice is cracking because it's like he's like 14 years old <laughs> everything we did was just like this wish to be something else uh but uh yeah one thing i wanted to definitely talk to you about is the uh the fixed vengeance of my young correct record collecting life which is the charles bronson metal sleeve clear vinyl edition uh <laughs> okay i had to trade Many a course of disapproval, seven inch to finally get it, Mark. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, believe me, it was it, the quest was amazing. You know, it was definitely, uh, it definitely <laughs> like one of the few childhood accomplishments that I can safely say I achieved. <laughs> wow. um, but no, what what was the you know the concept behind that? Like, is it true that you guys wanted them to destroy the records when you took it out of the sleeve? Uh, you know, like, tell, can you just tell me about that record? <laughs> uh, I remember thinking like, oh, we should do something like really cool. I'll just make like another cover and 
uh, it should be like really fancy. And I, I think it was, yeah, it was meant to be like super deluxe, but it was never meant to like scratch the record or <laughs> I remember Ebro numbered all of them, like 334. Was it? Yeah. I can't 333. Remember. Yeah. So he, he did that to make everyone mad, but, uh, and also uh, it was pasted over the, uh, the spindle hole. So you could never play it without. Yeah. You know, which I still do these to this day. Yeah. Uh, the person I got my copy off of couldn't resist the temptation and did play. Oh God. So, uh, but it's fine. I'm not planning on trading it. So the value is safe with me at this point, but how quickly that thing sell out immediately. Was it just given to friends? Like, I know you blew up the one with the shotgun on the DVD. I only had a couple of them. I actually was dating a a girl in Europe at the time and sold one to fly her to stay with me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, again, like these things were always kind of detached from me. I was like not really connected to it. Yeah. It's like I made the thing and I got like five of them in the mail and I was like in school. Uh, but people would hound me for them as if I was sitting on, you know, like I'm like dozens of them that I was just like playing hard to get. So that's why we shot it with the shotgun and I'd never used a shotgun before. And, I remember Nate Wilson, like it was his gun and he pulled it out from under the counter of his comic store in Albany. And they were cut, they were customers and they were flipping through magazines and they were, he, we were like, dude, but we took it out to a gun range. Uh, John Moran, who sang for monster X drove John and I out there and John had, uh, you can see in the video, he's got what looks like an M 16. It, it, it wasn't an actual M 16, but it looked like one. we, we, we were at like in the backwoods of upstate New York and actually sprained my wrist shooting the damn thing. <laughs> Just a kickback type thing? Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And it, it was weird because it felt like a toy to shoot the thing. I'd never even shot a gun. Yeah. Um, did you keep the one that you guys blew the hole in or just throw that in the trash? I gave it to Nate. He still has it. Oh, he still has it. Well, that's, yeah. that's definitely the rarest version. <laughs> yeah. Rarer than the test press, Mark. <laughs> right yeah yeah we'd gone to i think like kmart before that and bought bullets and you know i had no idea what i was doing with the thing it was so stupid but uh the Is whole that... time we were there i could hear gunshots going off all around us you know not really knowing if we we're gonna catch a stray bullet just being there it was crazy <laughs> i'm sorry go ahead no no is that when you kind of realize like that like records as the artifact, you know, and the idea of doing, you know, like not that you guys didn't take pride in the way you put out records prior to that, but like, I mean, like the idea of doing something that's more than just the music on the vinyl. And it's not just a delivery system for the music. It's, it's something of an artifact unto itself. Yeah, absolutely. And from that point on, I mean, we entered this phase where there were a million versions of every record. <laughs> yeah. And there were like there was this lame trend of taking old hardcore record art and then like sticking your shitty band's logo on top of it and calling that a version. <laughs> so it reached levels of absurdity very quickly by the early two thousands. And I remember telling Nate Wilson, like, dude, you shouldn't do that anymore. And yeah. I think he got he I think he was kind of hurt by that because he really <laughs> he really. He wanted to do it, but he didn't do it. So I think he listened to me begrudgingly. <laughs> uh, but it's amazing. You're right. Cause it's, it's, you know, and it, it, you see it now even more like, re- it's amazing how like early two thousands 
uh, kind of like not so cool hardcore record label practices are now the complete music industry practice of putting out like a million different versions of a record just right just to try and sell more yeah but i think we looked at it differently it was almost like a way of celebrating the release not so much from a marketing standpoint but to kind of give something to the people who actually cared um so it wasn't you know we had no idea how the charles bronson record would sell apparently they did well but i think from our standpoint we had you know great friends that i think wanted the thing and we wanted them to have it it was just uh sort of a farewell to the whole band and you know uh, martin did all of the uh limiteds i i think that i actually had a slightly different idea for the packaging uh but he he took it over it and you know he was he was very crafty with like his the way that he presented things but uh i think i envisioned somewhat something somewhat slicker but what actually came out was cool because I think you could like physically scratch the ink off the uh, the aluminum that it was it was screened onto, so it made it even more delicate. Like I just <laughs> knew like these things are doomed; they're never going to stand the test of time. But enjoy it while you can, I guess. Well, that's the thing, also, is because the corners of it, you know, the the aluminum it bends down a little bit. So if you don't pull up the record properly, it's going to scratch it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, those were very crudely cut and made. <laughs> I, I, I think there was some tape put on the edges because people were cutting themselves just assembling them because it was like, you know, the edge of a blade. It was so sharp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Dave Somm was telling me about putting uh, those together. And he's like, you got to watch how you, how you take that thing out or it's going to scratch it. So when I finally got my copy, you better believe I was careful taking it out of that thing. Yeah, <laughs> I actually wanted it to come with a pair of underwear. It said, you know, on the crotch, the biggest dicks in the scene. <laughs> but Martin talked me out of it. And we actually just did it for the oath years <laughs> later. Yeah. So there's, there's oath underwear that Brian Stern made for us. But it was initially a Bronson idea. Uh, and it's also like a, a very subtle tribute to Alice Cooper, I guess. <laughs> Is it? Well, there's did an Alice Cooper that? record that comes with paper uh, panties. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, but you know, but I think, you know, the fact that you didn't know it makes it all the cooler (laughs) (laughs) out of just the idea of being the biggest dicks in the sea. Yeah. I remember being in my dorm and a a box of them arrived and they were all damaged from the shipping. (laughs) Like, it's not perfect. You know, I'll never get a nice copy of this. Like we poured all this time into it and every one of them that I was sent is unsellable. Like I... (laughs) I think I just threw them out. Um, and, uh, you know, you brought it up earlier, but uh, I wanted to talk to you about the CD, because I think that to me is like one of the great CDs that came out of hardcore in the CD era. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's The packaging of that thing is ridiculous, you know, and right down to the CD-ROM that's included on it. Where did kind of the idea of doing a CD come from? Was it just the demand for, for the record? Because the record was selling for ridiculous money almost as soon as it came out, right? The LP? Yeah, and it came because there were bootleggers. Because we knew the guys in Co- you know, that ran Coalition Records, and mm-hmm. they were in touch with a lot of people in Europe, and there was a label there that, I mean, through, through them, they had told me this. I had never dealt with these guys, but there was a label in Germany that was like, 
if they don't let me release it in Europe, I'm just going to fucking bootleg it and fuck them. So I thought like, okay, I guess I better do something. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't have the resources to do like vinyl represses of all that stuff. And I just, it, all of it was out of print. So we just thought, okay, I guess now's the time to do a CD. And I never liked CDs. And I'm not even sure if I own a copy of the Charles Bronson double CD. He, I, my, there might be one in my parents' house in Illinois. But like, I, I just remember like making like 32 pages of a booklet cut and paste and put them in an envelope and sent them to the pressing plant, like thinking I would just get back a CD with a booklet in it. Yeah. <laughs> and they called, they called me up and they're like, what are we supposed to do with this? So who did do the computer layout for it? Like you, I guess that's when you first had to start figuring out how to use a computer. Layout oh stuff. yeah. I had, you know, I didn't have an email address. I didn't have an email address for years after that. I, uh, this guy, Brent did it. He just, he laid it all out and you know, they came in the mail. <laughs> Where did the idea come for the CD ROM, including that CD ROM? Well, we'd had this idea of doing like a documentary uh, where we were going to like do the sort of like standard talking head type footage of us like reflecting, but we just couldn't get it together. We didn't know anyone that had like a camera and we were all living spread apart at that point. So we just took some footage from Death Wish 3, <laughs> spliced it, and it was like, I can't believe got made. Yes. Uh, and um, yeah, it, we just had all this footage. I, you know, I don't even know where that footage is, actually. But there was we had a ton of footage at that point, and uh, it was all on like VHS tapes. Including uh, the now infamous Ebro appearance on Jerry Springer. Yes. With his ex-girlfriend. With his ex-girlfriend. Yes, which was so ridiculous. Uh, but we thought it was hilarious, of course. There's also that, have you seen the Locust Jerry Springer episode? Oh, yeah. But I think the Ebra one predates that. Yeah, it does. Did, did, did you tell him in advance that that was going to be on the CD-ROM, or did you let him find out when it came out? I think we just did it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You know, there was it wasn't one of those vans where we got everyone's clearance. It wasn't it wasn't democratic in the least bit. And I feel like that's actually for the best. Yeah. Because any band that I've been in since then that like adapts that policy is so endlessly frustrating to be in. I think for everybody. Mm -hmm. Trying to come up with something everyone is happy with, it's just lame. And I, I think like the I Ideal scenario is that you'd have a bunch of people who all share the similar outlook. And so like you just kind of know that they'll think it's cool and you just do it without even like telling them. And then when they get it, they're stoked. That's how this band was. I I don't remember there ever being any like pushback, except for maybe trying to insert like my Rosemary's baby obsession into the artwork and Ebro was like, yo, I don't think we need like Mia Farrow on another layout. Or Twig <laughs> we don't we don't need Twiggy on another cover. Like, can you stick to like the vision here? It's funny though, because like you're, you're the person I know in the band the least, but I, everyone else in the band I've, I've been on tour with in other bands and things like that. And I, I couldn't imagine a more fun band to be on tour with than Charles Bronson. Oh yeah, they're all the funniest people like you'll ever meet. They're all comedians. Yeah. Jeff Jeff Jalen is like the funniest guy. John Aaron's Ebro. 
Aaron Aspinwall, Mike Sutton, like these guys are so great. To this day, I love them so much that like I have nothing but praise for them. Uh, it's actually when I saw I actually set up a show for Fucked Up and oh, I punch in the face, and it's my fault that the show got canceled because Abro broke his arm. <laughs> yeah, because you do you remember you started a food fight. There was a food fight, and I threw a bowl of candied nuts at the stage, and Abro slipped on the nut. <laughs> and then the cops came. Yes. And uh, um, I got, uh, I, while uh, stuff was getting thrown at us, uh, one of the things that was being thrown at us was, was the gear, uh, and someone threw a turntable at us, and that's still my turntable. Holy shit. Yeah, my Tech 12. I got that day at the show. <laughs> and da- th- that DJ Danger Mouse was there. I mean, that was a crazy night. Dude, it was a Rapture Harmar yeah. Superstar, maybe. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. That I was remember a crazy hanging- show. Uh, my girlfriend at the time and I set that up. That is well. Thank you so much for having us. That was Mark the first really cool show we ever played. Like, I mean, oh like, really? Well, I mean, like punching a barber weight type cool. Like, we oh, were wow. like, how the fuck did we end up playing at this place with Meatwad Pinatas? And, uh, you know, and everything I think it's for, on. it wasn't it for like Nickelodeon. It was, it was the, uh, yeah, it was the adult swim release, oh, yeah. season release show or something. Right. Right. And I was like, the, I'm like the guy from devoid of faith and the guy from Charles Bronson just booked us to play with the guy who just remixed the Jay-Z record with the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was really nice. I remember getting along with, he was, he was really cool. I didn't get a chance to talk to him. I hope it's not his turntable that I got. Oh, God. You know, what's funny is that years later, I met uh, George Harrison's son, Danny. Okay. And I was like, what did you think of that Grey album? And he was so pissed about it. Really? Yeah. It all comes back to the Wu-Tang Clan. Didn't he do, like, a George Harrison cover with the Wu-Tang Clan? I don't know, but that sounds awful. It's not good. And he sings, like, the hook on it, and it's... Yeah, it's not. It's not not great. <laughs> oh, God, I can't imagine. <laughs> not, not to speak ill of uh, the son of a person who I don't know. The, no, it's just not. It's not great. You're not missing anything. A great record. <laughs> the, the gray album's yeah. way better. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, well, I have kept you for a very long time, and I could punish you forever just asking you about individual <laughs> songs and and. Uh, all that you know like every there's so many questions mark it's an unending list of questions um but i guess like i wanted to kind of find out like was there a point when you finally kind of accepted like charles bronson's place in in kind of music history punk history uh sure yeah because when i went to europe to tour with the oath i was seeing our stuff bootlegged everywhere and i thought it was funny you know, like I didn't get mad about it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, to this day, I'll get photos from friends being like, oh, look what they're selling. And it'll be like some bootleg shirt or uh, I think someone bootlegged the, some of the discography on vinyl in Germany, which I was actually kind of upset about. But uh, yeah, I think it just, for whatever reason, it became one of these type of entry bands that... Um, has stood the test of time and you know it's it's kind of weird for me to to reflect on it because i've never stopped you know i've just kept mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. 
Uh, and it was such a brief period and it was so long ago, but I'm glad that, that people care because, you know, we really, we poured ourselves into this thing and we were practicing constantly and trying our best to write our best material. It was just, we had sort of a bad attitude, but I, I think that all kind of feeds into why it is what it, what it became. Yeah. Well, and certainly now you've got, you know, like a, a massive discography of other projects and you've, you've got an incredibly successful label and this is all just one small part of your life, but you kind of, you kind of wound up creating the same sort of band that it seems like you were a fan of, you know, like a band that just had this brief moment and then, and disappeared. Like, what do you mean? Minor threat only put out two tapes. Like, what do you mean? Charles Bronson only has yeah. this much material. Well, when I got to New York to go to school, um, I was given this like workspace. It was like a little studio. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I did is I drew the faith logo on the wall with a marker. Yeah. And I was just like meeting people that were enrolled with me, like my, my classmates. And, um, one of them was like, you should meet our friend Ed. He, he's into music and in walks Ed Janney, who, <laughs> you know, I might jaw drop. Yeah. I had just, and he turns and sees the faith logo on the wall. And I was so embarrassed. <laughs> and I remember asking him like, dude, how old are you? And he, he said 35 and I was like, fuck, that's so old. And, uh, it's pretty, <laughs> did you say that to his face? <laughs> no, but I, I was just like, Oh my God, you know, like that's so depressing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but we got to talking and I was like, what's it feel like, you know, you're in all these incredible bands that, you know, and I remember him telling me great stories about like getting royalty checks from, uh, Sonic Youth for covering a song that he wrote when he was 14, you know, stuff like that. And he was like, yeah, it's going to happen to you. And I was like, no way, dude. Like, no way. Like, the faith is the greatest. And he would just kind of shrug it off. He actually made me some really cool live recording tapes of of them playing that I'd never heard anywhere. Yeah, we became friends. I, or I think I kind of hounded him more, but I was like 22 at the time. So by his prediction, one day there'll be a Fall Out Boy cover of Diet Root Beer. <laughs> yeah, I gotta hope not. <laughs> I think that's what has to happen so you get those royalty checks. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I can't imagine it, but we'll see. You know, it, stranger things have happened. You know, we are in a world where uh, Nick Fit was covered by Sonic Youth, so anything can happen. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> it's, well, that's that's what I love about this genre is, you know, it's it's such like a brief period in people's lives at times or or that it had like yeah. a real impact on them. But it just seems like such a lightning rod for interesting people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've met so many great people. I think that's kind of like what has kept me going is that, you know, if you're going to stay playing this kind of music where it's, it doesn't really stray too much, like stylistically. So like, everyone that you meet kind of brings their take to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like all those people uh, just, you know, collectively have brought so much to this type of, of music that I'm just so grateful that I was able to, to do this and to, to still be part of it. You know, as you get older, like maybe your outlook kind of changes about it or whatever, but you know, I'm still starting new bands. Like we just recorded something, a brand new thing, like a week ago. So like, 
all these things are happening. I've, I'm in like seven different things now and mm-hmm. they're all in various stages of completion, all with different people in, you know, all over the country. So it, it is a wild thing to think about because the, the language of it is really the unifying force. So it kind of like, you know, precedes every other aspect of living. Do you think you have a greater appreciation for it now than you did, you know, when you were like in your early twenties or, or late teens? It's like I only like a few of the bands still. I yeah. it's like um I was kind of into everything and now it's it's kind of like boiled down. And I've spent so much time like studying these bands and appreciating them and I kind of realized that they were so good and nothing I could ever do will ever come close to the magic they created. And it, it it's almost phenomenal in a way to think like that you can get into a room and capture this magic and it only happens once and you can never achieve that. So I think that's kind of the, it's, it's almost like a mystical force that like keeps you going. You're just like, there's always that likelihood that something amazing is going to come out of this. You go into it feeling terrible. Like we're not prepared. I can, I barely know what I'm doing and what comes out of it is always a surprise. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. Dude, this has been an amazing chance to kind of punish you and as i say i can punish <laughs> you way more i didn't even ask you about being on bovine records which anyone that listens <laughs> to this podcast enough knows that's my favorite label to talk about and i i didn't even bring it up so will you at some point come back for a part two sure man my pleasure awesome well mark this has been a dream come true for a little <laughs> charles bronson fan from toronto so thank you so much oh thanks Thank you, Mark, for coming on the show. And as you hear right there, there will be part twos and threes, hopefully down the road, because there's more to talk about. There's a lot more to talk about with that guy. A very funny guy, very different taste in music than me. A lot of the music that he dismisses, I I love, but that's what this show is about. You know, it's not about anyone's one definition of, of this genre of music. It's about everyone's multiple definitions of this genre of music. But speaking of what I'm sure would certainly be in Mark's definition of this music. Next week on the show, a band that Charles Bronson definitely covered. Next week on the show, Barry Hensler of the Necros and also of Big Chief and also of the amazing Motor Motor Booty fanzine and also of the lesser known but equally amazing, from what I hear, never actually seen a copy of this, Smegma Journals. And also uh, uh, of more, more stuff. We will talk about all of it next week. Barry is by far, of any guest I think I've had on the show, the earliest into wild show going to experiences. This is one for the ages. If you are a fan of the Necros, if you haven't heard the Necros, you got some homework to do because this is one of the all-time great hardcore bands. Uh, and yeah, this is, this is a great episode. I'm very excited for you to hear it. It's a longer one. Uh, but that's what we do here. You know, we, we, we have long conversations about stuff that only we care about. That's the thing. It's a little club just for us. And we're all putting together this giant jigsaw puzzle piece by piece. And one day we will have this picture in front of us that we will know we put together. And I'm saying we, because we're all involved. People are writing all the time, suggesting guests, Uh, putting me in touch with guests. So if you're out there and you got a connection to like Rick Rubin or Josh Brolin, get in touch because 
you know, those episodes need to happen because we need to connect those dots. But yeah, we're all working together on this thing. Thank you everyone for working on this with me. Go out there and make your own culture. And uh, yes, sign your organ donor cards. Uh, hug your loved ones. Please hug your loved ones. And uh, I will see you next week with another piece for the puzzle. Don't worry, I'm going to drop this puzzle motif next week. It's just the cannabis talking. Thanks for listening. <laughs>